It stands more than 160 stories tall. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai is the tallest building in the world. It's nearly twice as tall as the Empire State Building. But what if it became the object of a terrorist attack? And what if Israel's Mossad agency became aware of the plot? We'll talk about that and a whole lot more in a stimulating conversation titled Terrorism in Fiction and Fact. Welcome to the one-hour flyover of the Middle East, known as The Land and the Book, with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, why do we call it a one-hour flyover? Uh, Because in one hour, we do the equivalent of a normal tour of Israel. Uh, We look at what's happening in the current Middle East uh, and, and in Israel itself. Uh, we then uh, interview some fascinating people that we run across during those times in Israel. And uh, we answer questions because a trip to Israel always brings up questions in people's minds. And then finally, uh, we head out on a specific site. Uh, we pause, open the Bible, look over the site, and describe how the land really does impact our understanding of the book. Charlie, you hinted at our guests, and uh, today's guest is certainly no exception to the claim of, of well-connected and well-spoken. He is Amir Sarfati of Behold Israel. Many of our listeners are familiar with his ministry, so you'll look forward to that. Let's uh, dig into our look at current events for the week. Over the past several months, ISIS has again been making headlines Charlie, are these the dying gasps of a defeated foe, or is ISIS still a force that needs to be reckoned with in the coming months and maybe even years? Yeah, you know, most Americans thought ISIS had been vanquished more than a year ago. Uh, Certainly it dropped from the radar of most news organizations, but ISIS hasn't gone away. Uh, They recently jumped back into the headlines when President Biden announced the death of their leader in Syria at the hands of U.S. Special Forces. That was a significant setback for ISIS, though it was likely only a temporary setback. It won't take them very long to choose a new successor. The one just killed had only been in charge for about two and a half years following the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was killed by U.S. forces, by the way, in the same general area, in fact, within a few miles of each other. What most news organizations haven't been reporting is that ISIS has been regrouping and growing over the past two years. New ISIS cells have been reappearing in Syria and Iraq. ISIS fighters who'd gone underground into sleeper cells are now coming back out into the open. Uh, Several weeks ago, several hundred ISIS fighters staged a large-scale uprising and attack at a prison in eastern Syria. Many of the details of the attack and subsequent battle haven't been released, but it sounds like the incident was far more serious than what had initially been reported. So why haven't we been able to eliminate ISIS? Well, several factors continue to create the perfect breeding ground for that group. The first is the ongoing struggle between the Sunnis and the Shiites. If Iran represents the center of Shiite extremism, you know, exporting that extremism to Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, well, then ISIS represents the center of Sunni extremism. They view the Shiites as apostates. And their goal is to recreate a Sunni caliphate to extend control over the Middle East and eventually all the world. Those religious tensions also intersect with competing political goals. Assad of Syria is supported by Russia. But Assad belongs to a minority branch of Islam that's an offshoot of the Shiites, while the majority of Syrians are Sunni Arabs. It's no accident that Turkey, also a Sunni country, has carved out a Sunni stronghold in northwest Syria next to the Turkish border. Hmm. That's where the last two leaders of ISIS were hiding, along with many current and former supporters. Turkey and Russia have different goals for Syria, and they're being played out in the conflict between ISIS and Iran. The same struggles are taking place in Iraq, 
where the minority Sunnis resent the Shiite-dominated government that now controls the country and is supported by Iran. Religious extremism and political instability are a lethal combination, and they continue to provide a fertile breeding ground for ISIS. How likely is it that the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan has somehow uh, influenced this equation with ISIS and its uh, return to power? It certainly influenced ISIS and I think has actually breathed new life into another terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, which was connected even more vitally to Afghanistan and will very likely begin growing in that country as well. Well, while the world focuses on the nuclear talks in Vienna, Iran has been working to reshape the Middle East in other, perhaps even more profound ways. What has Iran been doing that isn't as well covered, Charlie, and what can be done, if anything, to blunt Iran's efforts? Well, you know, as I just mentioned, Iran's support for those ruling both Iraq and Syria continues to increase. Iranian proxy groups in both countries have launched attacks against U.S. forces and against Israel. Iranian-backed Iraqi militias, as well as Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen, have launched drone and missile attacks against Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Now, in addition to supporting and encouraging these terror groups, Iran is also trying to strengthen relationships with those countries challenging U.S. global supremacy. Uh, The billions of dollars in sanctions just released by the United States for Iran's so-called non-military atomic program will likely go to both Russia and China to help pay for their support in assisting Iran with its nuclear program. Iran's president met with Russian President Putin just a month ago in what's been described as a potential turning point in political, economic, and trade relations between those two countries. Both viewed the talks as an attempt to fill the power vacuum left in the Middle East with the decline of U.S. influence in the region. The two countries, along with China, are also discussing holding another naval drill in the region to buttress their growing cooperation. In terms of what can be done to blunt Iran's efforts, well, a continued U.S. presence in the region is critically important. Uh, the killing of the head of ISIS in Syria helped in that regard by showing our resolve to remain engaged in the region. Uh, we also sent advanced jet fighters and a guided missile destroyer to the United Arab Emirates to help contain the threat from Houthi rebel attacks. Uh, the other thing that can be done is to foster increased economic and military cooperation between Israel and the Gulf states. Israel's willingness to sell those countries advanced weapon systems, like the Iron Dome, provide protection for those countries while also generating income for Israel. Now, at the heart of all of those new relations is going to be a shared distrust of Iran. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're looking at current events here on the program. Story number three, the possibility of having natural gas and electricity flowing from Israel to Europe has been making headlines recently. What exactly is being proposed and how significant could this whole thing be? Yeah, well, two proposals are on the table and both are significant. The first is a commitment by the European Union to spend three quarters of a billion dollars to connect Israel and Cyprus to the European power grid. Cyprus is the last EU country without any electricity or gas connections to those other nations. The electricity connection would be an underground cable that would provide 2,000 megawatts of electricity from Greece to Cyprus and to Israel. It would allow each area to provide or receive electrical power in the event of a power disruption. Now, the gas connection is more tenuous. A gas pipeline connecting the Mediterranean gas fields in Israel and Cyprus to the European Union has been proposed. However, that pipeline is opposed by Turkey, which claims territorial waters in the Mediterranean all the way south to Libya. 
The Biden administration also just came out against the pipeline for environmental reasons. However, it's also possible our opposition could be related to not offending Turkey, which is a NATO ally. But shortly after we announced our opposition, Turkish President Erdogan said Turkey and Israel could potentially cooperate on gas shipments to Europe. Now, it's hard to see that as a genuine offer since Erdogan has consistently opposed Israel. More likely, it's an attempt on his part to drive a wedge between Israel and Greece and Cyprus. In any case, right now, the gas pipeline seems to be, well, more like a pipe dream. Hmm. But construction on the electrical connection is set to begin later this year with electricity to begin flowing by 2026. Interesting. Looking forward to following that up. Well, a group of Israeli researchers has discovered the best early warning system for detecting COVID outbreaks, and it involves monitoring a community's sewage. Charlie, I'm curious, how does this latest innovation out of Amazing Israel actually work? Well, after reading about the system, which is already in place in Israel, I've also read about attempts to implement similar systems here in the U.S. So there's worldwide support for this concept. Now, the technology developed in Israel is by a company called Kandu, that's K-A-N-D-O, and basically it's the sewage equivalent of a citywide early warning system. When a person is infected with COVID, their body sheds virus particles. Uh, This system detects those particles in sewage, allowing officials to see an outbreak seven to 10 days before it shows up by conventional means. That gives decision makers time to prepare for the upcoming wave, to set up additional testing sites, and to identify and isolate infected individuals before they're able to infect others. Now, in a worldwide first, Israel is installing the technology in all Israeli municipalities of more than 20,000 people. While many countries are sampling sewage manually, Israel is doing so using machine learning and artificial intelligence technology. In addition to monitoring for COVID, the system can also be used to watch for other pathogens like the polio virus or even antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Uh, Using cutting-edge technology to study sewage and detect potential problems before they become a major outbreak, (laughs) that's another helpful innovation from the scientists in Amazing Israel. Charlie, I'm thinking of our trip to uh, Israel back in November. Is it still the same, I'm guessing, that uh, you still have pretty good freedom to travel about and have less long lines? I love that, that we didn't have long lines in November. Uh, That's exactly right. Uh, Yes to both statements. And one other thing, there's been a lot of rain since November. Uh, Things are now green and the flowers are out. All right, coming up on The Land and the Book, a conversation with Amir Sarfati of Behold Israel. Terrorism in fiction and fact. You don't want to miss it. It's all ahead on The Land and the Book. And our website, thelandandthebook.org. Stay with us. More than 160 stories tall, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is the tallest building in the world. It's nearly twice as tall as the Empire State Building. But what if the Burj became the object of a terrorist attack? And what if Israel's Mossad agency became aware of the plot? We'll talk about that and a whole lot more in a stimulating conversation next. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And before heading off to Dubai and other parts of the Middle East, let's pause a moment. Think with me, how can you and I be more intentional in reaching out to our Jewish friends for Christ? What does it mean to love my Jewish neighbor or coworker personally? 
Justin Crone is with Chosen People Ministries. What's one thought that comes to mind for you? To love them personally is just love them where they're at. Like, just be their friend. Just get to know them. Take an interest in who they are, just like you would with any person. I would say don't treat them differently Mm -hmm. uh, because they're Jewish. Uh, But do take an interest. If, If that's an important part of their identity, explore it and see where that leads. And hopefully in return, they'll also take an interest in you and who you are. And in those opportunities, uh, follow the Holy Spirit's prompting to be honest and authentic about who you are as a follower of Jesus. You know, this almost assumes a pre-existing friendship or relationship, and that ought to be there first before, you know, any of this conversation. I'm an incredibly strong proponent on relational evangelism. Mm -hmm. You know, just be a friend, you know, be a good neighbor, uh, whatever that looks like in the world that you're at, whatever table you're sitting at, be a good neighbor. And uh, just be the type of person that people are going to sit there and they're going to say, ah, there's something different about that person. I want to get to know more of who they are. I love it. Thank you, Justin. Justin Crone is with Chosen People Ministries and joins us now on The Land and the Book. Amir Tsarfadi is a native Israeli and former major in the Israeli Defense Forces. He's the founder and president of Behold Israel a nonprofit ministry that provides Bible teaching through tours, conferences, and social media. Amir is married with four children and resides in northern Israel, where this uh, conversation is coming to you today. It is an honor to be here in Israel meeting with you today, Amir. Hey, Shalom John. Shalom all the Moody Bible listeners. It's an honor for me to be here with you today. For some Americans, their only exposure to the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, is the movie Mission Impossible. Describe this structure, though, and its significance to the Arab world. Well, the Arab world is, of course, in that part of the Arab world, I'm talking about the Gulf area, is very, very oil-rich. However, oil is nice, but you can't see much of it unless you do something with it that kind of displays your wealth. And that was Burj Khalifa all about. It is a display of the strength and the wealth of the United Arab Emirates. And just so you know, the very interesting competition between the different countries around there, who has the tallest building? Now, the Saudis are engaged in building the Jeddah Tower that will be even taller than Burj Khalifa. So you can clearly see that it's about power, it's about prestige, and also it's about tourism. A lot of people are traveling all over to the United Arab Emirates and to Dubai in particular to see and visit Burj Khalifa. Well, the idea of the Burj being a target of a foreign militia group is at the heart of a book that you have co-written with Steve Yeun. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I've often wondered, how in the world is it that this building has remained standing with Sunnis hating their Shiite brothers, other issues? Why has it not been blown up by now? Well, at at the moment, it doesn't really serve anybody's interest to do that. But our book is dealing with what is changing. And in fact, having the United Arab Emirates engage in a peace accord with Israel basically elevates the threat to the safety of Burj Khalifa in hundreds of percent. It's amazing. And this is what this book is all about. How has your experience as a major in the Israeli Defense Forces give your writing authenticity? What information do you have access to maybe that others might not? Well, first of all, I know how our agency is working, the Mossad agency is working. And I also know that unlike what people think, 
we have behind the scenes and under the surface relations with some Arab countries that um, we don't have diplomatic relationship with, such as Saudi Arabia, for example. And so it's in the best of the interest of Israel to keep our allies safe and uh, to convince them that it's actually better for them to lean on us and be with us and partner with us rather than to think that being under the shadow of the wings of the Iranians is going to serve their interests and protect them. And so Israel, I believe, has been uh, behind the scenes working with the United Arab Emirates way before the Abraham Accord was signed. In fact, I believe that collaboration led to the trust that was needed for the Abraham Accord to be signed. Amir Sarfati is our guest today on The Land and the Book. He's the founder and president of Behold Israel. Well, let's uh, meet your two main characters. We've got Nir and Nicole. Correct. Nir Tavor was actually a security detail in the Israeli embassy in South Africa in Johannesburg. He was not yet a Mossad operative. Nicole was just a model that was part of a an event that the Israeli embassy was throwing in Cape Town. And uh, from page one, there's already action in the book and a terrorist attack basically right there in South Africa brought together Nir and Nicole and their relationship started growing. And it's a very interesting thing because eventually, I don't want to say too much, but eventually they found themselves working together. But every one of them comes from a different background and has uh, a lot to go through himself. There's, uh, this book is also this personal journey of each and every one of them. But that's how they met, a Gentile model in South Africa and a Jewish Sabra, Israeli-born uh, security detail in the Israeli embassy in South Africa. And then the story goes on. Operation Yoktan. And by the way, if you're looking for it, it's not spelled Y. Spell that out for us. Well, to many, it looks like Joktan, but it's actually Yoktan, one of the descendants of Noah. And of course, the area that we're dealing with is the area where Yoktan originally dwelled. What does this book tell us about terrorism that we really maybe haven't considered or perhaps need to reconsider? Well, terrorism is playing a very significant part in Bible prophecy. And we need to understand it's not just peace accords. It's not just uh, major wars. Right now, we believe that terrorism is the war between the wars. And terrorism eventually brings you to a point where there is an explosion. And that big explosion can be already prophesied in the Bible. And so I believe that terrorism is a catalyst. And terrorism is also a lifestyle of certain people. And um, unlike terrorism, peace is the other thing that you need to look for, or in contrast to terrorism. And we are also watching the journey to find that peace in the heart of Nir and Nicole. So we have this growing relationship between Nir and Nicole, and she ends up sharing her faith with Nir, who is not born again. How do you avoid cliche dialogue and cheesy conversation about truly important spiritual issues. Well, as a Jewish believer, I was born in Israel as a non-believer. Obviously, I got saved only when I was close to 18 years old. And so I understand how the Jewish Israeli-born 
non-believing uh, people think. And so there's nothing type of a cliche here. It's, it's really the Jewish struggle to understand the New Testament, to understand who Jesus was, what he's all about, what Messiah, the concept of Messiah is all about, and how it's actually super Jewish and not a foreign religion that was born somewhere at some time. Well, you've hinted at it. Let's take a moment. Tell us about that journey. You're 18 years old. You're not born again at the time. What has led you in any way, shape, or form to even consider this Yeshua person that you hear about? Well, I was going through a personal uh, crisis in my life. I grew up in foster care. I didn't have father or mother with me since... I guess, the age of three. And foster care, as good as it can get in Israel, it's never good enough. And uh, I went through a a crisis where I thought to myself, is life worth living? Is there any hope in this world? Because my past and my present definitely were hopeless. So I considered actually uh, ending my life. And this is where I remember the Lord, now I know it's the Lord, basically kept me to explore the faith of my best friend in school. I actually went to his home just so we can study together for the final exams in high school. And we sat together around a table for lunch and I saw his parents and siblings, they're all holding hands and praying without any prayer books. And they have a living faith in a living God without any religious you know, symbols or nothing. It was just pure faith. I. I was provoked to jealousy, and that's how it all started. What was a tipping point, though, for you to move from curiosity and intrigue to, I must have this? The tipping point was the Jesus film that I saw. I mean, I heard so much about Yeshua. I read all about Old Testament prophecies. I did not even dare to read the New Testament at that time, because for me, I'm not sure it's for me. I'm not sure it's for Jewish people. I'm still not really clear about that. But I know for a fact that the Old Testament is is the Jewish people's book, so it's okay. So I read and read and read all the prophecies in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Joel and in Ezekiel and in Zechariah. So, I, I mean, I was aware of all of these things, but I never really put them together. And so when I went to see the Jesus film of Campus Crusade that was miraculously showing in Jerusalem that very time, all the pieces came together for me. Now I understand, and it was paving the way for me to not only accept him personally as my Lord and Savior, but for the first time daring to read the New Testament and to see the full picture. He's a former major in the Israeli Defense Forces and founder and president of Behold Israel, a nonprofit ministry that provides Bible teaching, tours, conferences, and social media. Amir Sarfati has also written Operation Yoktan from Harvest House Publishers, a fascinating book about, well, espionage and terrorism and things we should know as we face the future. Any plans for this book to release in Hebrew or Arabic? Actually, all of my books right now are in different languages but Hebrew because we're looking for the right uh, publisher here. Uh, We are definitely going to do that. But remember, Israelis are less excited about these things because they live them. I see a lot of Americans, they go to shoot with their guns in the gun ranges and all of that. We don't do that. We don't just go to shoot in a gun range. We we have military service. We go to the uh, reserve duty every year. So books like that will do not as well in Israel because this is the life of the Israelis, the day-to-day life of the Israelis. This is the headlines of every day in Israel. I mean, stuff like that. So I would say 
The only reason why I would appreciate the book translated to Hebrew and Arabic is, of course, the opportunity to share the gospel with both Jews and Arabs. I'm just curious, what do you think the, the response might be to this book from the average citizens in Dubai and the United Arab Emirates? I think that nobody in Dubai is innocent or naive about the intentions of the Iranians and their proxies. Everybody knows that there is a sort of a danger, and the closer the Emirates will come to Israel, the, the higher the risk is. We already had something going on in the Dubai port a couple months ago where there was a major explosion from a, a shipping container, and we know that it's a ship that came straight from Iran. We know that they're capable of doing that. We also know that the actual terrorist attack described in the book is something very realistic that the Israelis are already engaged in helping the Emiratis preventing. So everything that uh, we, we talk about in the book is something that people in the highest levels in the security forces in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia are already well acquainted with. So what's your goal in writing this? Is this a wake-up call of some sort? Is this mostly a, a creative way to talk about sharing your faith in a Middle East context? What's your goal here? I will be very honest with you. My goal is to bring the gospel through the back door. I believe that writing fiction will open the world of my writings to places uh, and people that would never take a Christian book, per se, and start reading it. I believe that fiction is also a way for people who want to run from reality to understand reality. So my prayer is that the journey that Nir is going through in this series will be a journey that is an, an average Israeli who would read it will, will go through, or an average reader would go through. That's Amir Sarfati. And again, his book, Operation Yoktan, it's a fascinating story of intrigue, espionage, action, and most of all, Jesus. And uh, as those planes fly overhead here in Israel, we're going to say thank you so much, Amir, for your time. And we look forward to more in this series. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. So often when my wife and I are doing a devotional time together, you know, I'll read a passage and put the Bible down and she will say, or I will say, no, what's really going on? Isn't that just the way it is when we read scripture? I'm John Geiger. And if that's your experience, and if you've got questions, this segment is especially for you. I love it because at last we get answers, you know, uh, some questions don't have answers, but a lot of them do. And Dr. Charlie Dyer is always pleased to entertain your questions. Charlie, how does this process work for somebody who's uh, interested with their own question? Well, if they've got a question, all they need to do is write to us at thelandinthebook at moody.edu and write their question down. Uh, I'll try and answer them back in an email as quickly as possible, and then we'll put it into our bundle of uh, emails that we have to answer on the program later on as well. John listens to us from Wheaton, Illinois, and his question is first out of the bundle for today. He says, would you please explain what's going on in Matthew 15, verses 26 and 28? I'm trying to understand what Jesus meant by taking food from children and throwing it to the dogs. Yeah, well, I think the key to the passage is what Jesus actually says in verse 24. At his first coming, he was sent, he says, only to the lost sheep of Israel. And that is, his primary ministry was to fulfill God's promises to Israel and to present himself as their Messiah. Uh, the major change in focus, you know, from Israel to the rest of the world, came after his death and resurrection. And we see that at the very end of Matthew and in Acts 
Now, in light of his primary mission, Jesus used the illustration from a home. Uh, The children to whom the bread was to be offered were the children of Israel. And just as in real life, it wouldn't be right to take food needed to feed one's children and use it instead to feed the family pet. So it wasn't right for Jesus at that point in time to change the focus of his ministry to the Jews and redirect it to the Gentiles. What I would love, though, is by her response, the woman shows she understood that. And she was willing to settle for the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She accepted the priority of God's program for Israel, but in faith was simply asking for any remaining portion of God's grace that might otherwise fall by the wayside. And because of her faith, Jesus granted a request. Now, I think our struggle with these verses is twofold. First, we have difficulty thinking of others as dogs. But Jesus was simply providing an illustration from family life to show there was a priority to his ministry at the time of his first coming. Now, I do balance that statement, by the way, with Jesus's words to the Jewish audience in John 10. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. So he's really saying his ministry did have a worldwide focus, but there was a priority in order. But the second reason we struggle is we often fail to see the unique relationship Jesus had to the Jewish people. At his first coming, Jesus' messages and miracles were designed to present him as the Messiah. But this side of the cross, we also know his ultimate death and resurrection were intended to bring salvation to all humanity, not just the Jewish people. And yet, I hasten to add, God's program for Israel isn't over. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming to fulfill the rest of his promises to Israel and to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul writes, Dear Brother Dyer, I love the land and the book. I listen to your program every week, and I also listen to John most mornings on Majesty Radio, all on the Moody Radio app. Hey, listen, Majesty Radio is a great stream of music online, a lot of familiar hymns there, and uh, you can get it on the Moody Radio app for your Android phone or iPhone. It's free. You can also listen to the land and the book on the Moody Radio app. Here's his question. He's taking us to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where he's been reading, thinking about all the sacrifices that were offered, all the blood sprinkled on the altar. Question, how were they able to clean this day after day? What did they use? Did they have a a drainage system or just carry it away in buckets? My brother worked at a cattle slaughterhouse, and it smelled to me like, forgive me, he says, high heaven. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, the Bible doesn't provide a clear, direct answer, but we do have some hints there. You know, in the tabernacle times, we do know that it was a portable structure. It moved through the wilderness, uh, so it didn't stay in one place the entire time. And it also sat directly on the ground rather than on stone or wood. So uh, the earth would at least soak up some of the blood, and in the winter, the rain would help wash the blood into the soil. But it's also possible the priests did wash it down on a regular basis, though we're just not told that in the Bible. Now, as you go further in history, we do know that uh, in Solomon's temple, there was probably some channel or some way to uh, drain the blood away. Uh, And I say that because in Ezekiel 43, he describes the millennial temple. And in his description of the altar, God includes a gutter or a base, depending on the translation, with a rim at the bottom of the altar. It looks like it's some sort of a channel used to drain away the blood. Now, since Ezekiel prophesied during the days of Solomon's temple, it's at least possible that some similar system was there in place in his day. Now, we do have some rabbinic sources that talk about the second temple, and they say that there was water available on the Temple Mount to wash the blood into drains that led out into the Kidron Valley, and it drained into the valley and was actually collected and used for fertilizer. Now, we can't verify any of that archaeologically since excavations aren't allowed on the Temple Mount, but it does make sense. But the one thing we do know, 
It would have been a bloody and at times smelly scene. And to bring the sacrifices, the message, I think, was clear to the people who came. Uh, The approach to a holy God required the death of a sacrifice, which served as a substitute for our sins. Now, thankfully, our sin bearer has once for all died to pay that price, and then he rose from the dead. If you just joined us, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, enjoying the answers that Charlie's providing to your questions that have come to us via email, like this one from Eric, who asks about the Reformed Church. What is the Reformed Church? How do their views and beliefs differ from other Protestant groups? Which major denominations fit into the Reformed Church? That's a large question. I'm not sure if I can give a large answer, but let me try and give a simple one. First, the five basic distinctives of Reformed theology are usually summarized by the acronym TULIP, total depravity of man, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, identifying the Reformed Church in terms of denominations, that's a little more complex. The Reformed Church in America is the offshoot of the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, The Christian Reformed Church then split from this group over what they saw as theological drift. Now, each of those two groups have around 300,000 members. And if that's not enough confusion, there was also a German Reformed group called the German Reformed Church in the U.S. They've since merged with other groups to form the United Church of Christ. That group's generally considered to be liberal theologically, and the denomination's lost about half its members over the last 60 years. So a complex answer to a very straightforward question. Here's one from Patrick. My question is about two seeming conflicting verses in Isaiah. Chapter 30, verse 19, God says he will listen to his people's prayers and answer them. While in Isaiah 59, verse 2, God says he will no longer hear his people's prayers because of their sin. How would the people get access back to God? Repentance? And does that mean God will always listen to our prayers today because we are under the new covenant of Christ's grace? Well, the two passages can be harmonized if you look carefully at the context. Uh, Chapter 30 is part of an extended discussion. Uh, God gives six woes on his people. And within this section, he says a day's coming when he's going to lay waste the earth as he punishes the powers in the heavens above, the kings in the earth below. And, And describing this judgment, Isaiah keeps repeating a phrase, in that day. And I believe the passage is ultimately referring to the coming tribulation period and the judgment at the time of Christ's return. But he also weaves through that section a series of blessings that God promises to bring in that day. And chapter 30, verse 19, follows God's description of what will happen in that day. Uh, He says, Israel's sin will cause them to experience God's judgment, but then God will announce to them a new way out through returning in faith to him. And in repentance and rest is your salvation. Blessed are all who wait for him. And then verse 19 shows the moment when the remnant does return to the Lord. Now, Isaiah 59, I see much the same thing. It begins by acknowledging the problem Israel will be experiencing during the tribulation. And it's not because God's unable to bring deliverance. He says, surely the arm of the Lord isn't too short to save. But then in verses 2 to 8, he describes the real problem. It's the sinfulness of the people. Now, notice carefully, he uses you and your and they and their. As he says at the very beginning, your iniquities have separated you from your God. And then finally, in verses 9 to 13, he provides the response the people will make in that day when they realize the real problem has been their sinfulness. And he explains what they will finally say to the Lord. We acknowledge our iniquities. So Isaiah is describing a national repentance that comes during the tribulation period. And once they acknowledge their sin and turn in repentance to the Lord, then God will intervene to save them physically and spiritually. And that's what follows in verses 15 to 21. Uh, One final point. 
I don't think we can assume that God will hear in the sense of hearing and answering all our prayers because we're recipients of the new covenant. And I say that because of passages like 1 Peter 3, 17, which talks about husbands treating their wives in a proper manner so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Or James 4, 3, where he says, we might not receive what we ask for in prayer because we can still ask with wrong motives. And I see the same principle in Psalm 66 that's applicable today. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Charlie, when somebody emails you a question, what's a typical turnaround time for an answer? Well, I try and answer within one to two days. Uh, now, if I'm out of the country or something else, it can take a little longer. But, but generally, I'm just uh, a fanatic about keeping my inbox as low as possible. Hey, if that sounds good to you, why not send your question to the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. Stick around. The more you read about it, the more you understand how good it is for you. I'm talking about honey. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land of the Book. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about that wonderful byproduct that bees bring us honey. It's the focus of Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up here on The Land and the Book. First, though, let's take in this Holy Land experience, the thoughts from somebody who's been to Israel and now shares this with you and me. Yeah, Israel for me was um, just an incredible experience uh, above and beyond any vacation that I've taken. Um, I'm a visual learner, so going to the land of Israel and to come back and be able to picture the stories in the Bible, uh, the land that was there, and just obviously it, it holds a, a stronger ground in your in your memory. Um, it makes a bigger impact. And I think, you know, picturing the Sermon on the Mount, you're sitting there on the mountain, and you can picture Jesus um, reading off the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Beatitudes, and then the feeding of the 5,000 right there, or even the vast wilderness. That's one thing that just... Um, took me up by surprise at just how vast the wilderness was and just imagining Jesus wandering in there for 40 days and uh, just talking to God. And then even the, the city of Jerusalem itself, you know, standing on the Mount of Olives and looking over the city and just imagining the excitement of the people as they came to the feasts or the sacrifices and seeing the temple on top of the mount there. And uh, just an incredible experience, uh, really life-changing right then and there. But when you come back, even over the last two years or three years that I've been, uh, just over time, how really that impacts my life. And really just a sense of responsibility to teach uh, what I've seen as well and just um, share that with others. Isn't it interesting to hear how a visit to Israel impacts everybody's life? Always a different perspective in these Holy Land experiences that we share with you week after week. Well, here's a perspective you need to hear. It's Charlie's devotional. Charlie? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses described the promised land as a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And today we want to look at the last of these seven species, honey, and you just might find today's field trip a bit of a surprise. Now, when we think of honey, we picture the sticky, golden sweetness that oozes from a honeycomb or drips from a dipper drawn from a honey jar. And the Bible does have much to say about honey from bees. Twenty times in the Old Testament, God described the promised land as a land of milk and honey. To Israelites living with their flocks and herds in the Sinai Desert, 
Such a description made perfect sense. The land God promised had sufficient rainfall to produce an abundance of pasture land. The fertile land would provide excellent grazing for their animals, allowing them to produce large amounts of milk. And the trees and flowers throughout the land would provide both pollen and nectar, essential ingredients for producing honey. To describe the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey was to make a clear statement about its potential. Less known to most Bible students are the two times when a similar phrase is used to describe God's judgment on the land. Both occur in Isaiah 7, the passage that predicted the birth of Emmanuel to the virgin. Isaiah announced there that because of King Ahaz's sin, the future child would be born in a time of great difficulty, brought on by Gentile oppression. In 7.15, he says the child would eat curds and honey. Curds form when milk is allowed to coagulate and the remaining liquid, called whey, is drained off. Curds were an early form of cheese. But why would a cheese and honey diet be a sign of hardship and difficulty? The people would be eating curds and honey, Isaiah is saying, because in that day, that'll be the only food available. Isaiah pictures a time when all the cultivated land will be destroyed, trampled by the armies and untended because so many inhabitants will have been killed or carried into captivity. Like a garden overgrown by weeds, the fields will be choked with briars and thorns, crowding out the cultivated plants, and the people will be forced back into a lifestyle where they'll survive as herdsmen rather than farmers. They'll be eating curds because of the flocks of sheep and cows now living off the weeds in the once fertile fields. And the increase in wildflowers will produce a corresponding increase in bees, so the people will search for wild honey to supplement their meager diet. Milk and honey. Twenty times the phrase was used to picture a fertile land to nomads coming off the desert, and twice it was used to picture a land decimated by invaders whose cultivated fields were turned into patches of weeds. But which did Moses have in mind in Deuteronomy 8 when he listed honey as one of the seven species of the land? The answer is neither one. The honey in Deuteronomy 8 doesn't refer to the honey produced by bees. Rather, it pictures the sweet fruit of the date palm tree. How do we know this? The Talmud sages declared, the honey of the seven species is dates. The man who founded Naot Kedumim, the biblical landscape reserve in Israel, explains their reasoning this way. Bee honey would be a strange exception to a list comprising only plants and their products. He believes God included the fruit of the date palm in this list because all seven plants listed were essential crops whose ultimate success or failure was determined between Passover and Pentecost. He writes, During this period between mid-April and mid-June, the flowers of the olive, grape, pomegranate, and date open, and the embryonic figs begin to develop. During this same period, the kernels of wheat and barley fill with starch, and so the fate of the crops of each of the seven varieties is determined. So the honey in Deuteronomy 8 comes from the date palm tree, not from bees. But what does date palm honey have to do with 2 Kings 18, our passage of the day, or, or with us? To find our answer, we need to climb to the top of Jerusalem's walls in the days of King Hezekiah. Jerusalem was under siege by the Assyrian army. The enemy had come to the very gates of the capital, and the Assyrian commander is shouting to those of us on the walls, ordering us to abandon King Hezekiah and surrender to his army. 
Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of you his vine and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. The commander smiles after delivering what he believes to be an attractive offer to the people of Jerusalem. Surrender to us, and you can enjoy all the benefits you now have, grain, vines, olives, even date palm honey. It seems as if he listed honey last, paralleling the original list of plants given by God. The date palm honey, if you will, was the sweet treat at the end, the dessert, and all you have to do to enjoy it is to renounce your trust in God, disobey the king set in place by God, and leave the land promised to you by God. Thankfully, the people didn't respond to this offer that the Assyrians thought they couldn't refuse because it made such perfect sense. Surrender or be slaughtered. Accept life in captivity or death in your land. Put your trust in me since you can see my power or keep clinging to the promises of an invisible God. The king of Assyria was certain no God could deliver these people if they refused to surrender, but he turned out to be wrong. God sent the angel of the Lord and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night. The siege was broken and God rescued his people. It was a difficult time for the nation, but God delivered those who trusted in him. And that brings me back to the seven species of the land in Deuteronomy 8. The king of Assyria offered a substitute, a shortcut to enjoying what God had promised. Like many of the get-rich-quick schemes that are bound today, he offered all the gain with none of the pain. But his offer was bogus. The honey he promised would have cost the people their liberty and their land. Thankfully, they refused. So what does date palm honey or Assyria's offer to the people of Jerusalem have to do with us today? Well, just as God promised a bountiful land to Israel in Deuteronomy 8, so today he's promised spiritual bounty to those who follow him. Some of his blessings, like the fruit of the Spirit, are available right now, while others won't be ours until his final heavenly harvest. But stay faithful. When Satan comes promising cheap substitutes that he says will bring instant gratification, stay on your walls and don't answer him a word. His offer of happiness comes at the expense of your life and liberty in Christ. God's date palm honey is infinitely sweeter than anything Satan can offer. Well said. Thanks, Charlie. Almost makes me want to head out and pour myself a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. Well, as always, we welcome you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you'll find a link to our Facebook page. Give a click to that Facebook icon when you visit thelandandthebook.org. Appreciate you joining us today. For the team here at The Land of the Book, I'm John Gaker. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.